I'm Jennifer Grayson, and this is the Uncivilized Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Uncivilized Podcast, where we are reconciling the modern urban existence with our innate human need for the natural world. I'm Jennifer Grayson. I am so excited about today's show about the forest kindergarten movement. I've been wanting to cover this for a really long time, and I was lucky enough to get an interview for you with the leader of that movement here in the U.S., Aaron Kenny, who is truly one of the most passionate and eloquent thought leaders I've ever had the privilege of speaking with. So if you haven't heard yet about forest kindergartens, it's very much what it sounds like. It's an early childhood education program that is entirely outdoors in nature. In Aaron's case, that setting is on five acres of native forest on magical Vashon Island, about an hour outside of Seattle, where she spent the past 12 years developing this program that is now just starting to catch on in the U.S. Although unbelievably, forest schools have existed for more than half a century in Germany, where they're known as vault kindergartens. Today, there are more than 1,500 of these all-outdoor preschools there. Um, and in other parts of the world, too, that take place even in parks in cities. And so when I first heard that, I was blown away, 1,500, that this is the norm in Germany. But also my heart sank because it was after my daughters were already through preschool. I so wish I had known about forest schools. And honestly, it took us a few years of going through the system to grasp how drastically schools and even preschools have changed since I was a kid, how intensely academic they've become, and what we're doing to our children by not allowing them free time to explore, to play outdoors in the way that so many of us in the pre-internet, pre-helicopter parenting generation were allowed to as kids. Um, You know, I think all of us are acutely aware especially in these weeks after the school shooting in Parkland, Florida, by a teenage gunman, that children today are deeply troubled. I recorded this interview with Aaron before that happened, but listening back to the interview in that context adds a new sense of urgency to our discussion about the pressures of modern-day education and the long-term impact of raising children in the absence of nature, which is unprecedented in the course of human history. And forest kindergartens as this early intervention model for so much of the physical and mental illness we are now witnessing in the modern day world. All seriousness aside, I know you're just going to love hearing from Erin as much as I loved speaking with her. She is such an incredible human being. So enjoy this episode. I want to thank you so much in advance for listening, for your support. We are nearing the end of this first season, and so it would help me so much in my effort to get amazing guests like Erin for season two if you would take a moment right now to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes if you feel it in your heart, and to also write a quick review. Thank you so much for that in advance. Uh, the links to everything from today's show, including Aaron's book, will be up on jennifergrayson.com. And I will be back next Monday with a new episode. I'm here today with Erin Kenny, an internationally recognized leader in the forest kindergarten movement who has been developing programs to connect children with nature for over two decades. 
Back in 2006, she created Cedar Song Preschool on Vashon Island in Washington State and has spent the last 10 years developing the program into a gold standard model, now known as Cedar Song Forest Kindergarten, the first U.S. forest kindergarten based on the German Vault Kindergarten model. Erin, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jennifer. It's an honor to be here. Well, I am so excited to speak with you today. And actually, you know, we were first scheduled to talk about a month ago, and I was really excited to talk to you that day because <laughs> uh, there was a crazy week of rainstorms here in Los Angeles, and mm. parents were freaking out. I mean, no kid was allowed outside. <laughs> um, we biked to school every day, and so I decided to bike home with the kids in the rain. And I mean, I can't tell you how many parents stopped and were like, do you want to ride home? What are you doing out in the rain? And so, wow. Uh, I was kind of chuckling because I just read your book about how you guys are out in the rain. You're out in the snow. You're out in anything, you know. And so I was wondering maybe if you could tell me about what's the weather been like uh, up at Cedar Song and, and what are the kids experiencing? They actually do go out in the rain there, right? Oh, absolutely, Jennifer. Our school is open year round, no matter what the weather. The children ages two to six are playing in the forest. Uh, whether it's driving rain, icy rain, snow. And the thing that I found after all these years of running the forest kindergarten is that children literally will not complain about the weather if they are appropriately dressed. So that is, in fact, one of the essential elements to the success of a program like ours. And getting the parents on board with understanding that a certain high-quality outdoor gears required for the success of our program has been a challenge. Um, many parents today, especially in the U.S., we're a very indoor culture, um, keep their children in in the rain or the snow because they themselves can't imagine spending all that time outdoors. However, in my experience, children crave being outdoors and they don't care what's going on with the weather. In fact, some of the pouring rainy days have been some of our most fun days because children really delight in water play, as you probably know, and our mud puddle fills up with water and the children have so much fun pouring buckets of water down the channels they've created and building dams and bridges. They will be outdoors for four hours without complaint in the pouring rain. And the fact that parents ask me what we do with the children when it's raining outdoors really illustrates our lack of understanding about the allure of outdoor time for children, no matter what the weather. As adults, if it's pouring rain, we think of it as a miserable day. That is not the experience of young children if they're appropriately dressed. Yeah. So, okay. First, I want to ask you, so what are they actually wearing? Well, we have what spent are your many secrets? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we have spent many years coming up with what we call the Cedar Song clothing uniform. And this is mostly for the winter months. We have certain required brand name clothing. And this is specifically because over the years, we found that these Specific brands and styles of clothing keep the children warm and dry no matter how much rain uh, pours down in the Pacific Northwest. We require the children to wear bogs footwear, bogs boots, uh, Okiwear rain pants, and Columbia Omnitech or Bugaboo winter jackets with a zip-in fleece. If parents cannot afford this high-quality gear, we will actually buy it for them. And better yet, we have a full complement of this clothing that has been donated by these generous companies so that parents can check them out 
for an entire year by signing a use agreement. And then their children can take home this high quality gear, even if they're only attending our school twice a week. This way, they can enjoy their outdoor time when they're not at Cedar Song, and it will extend the children's experience with nature play when they're at home. It'll, it will encourage the parents to take the children out, hopefully, more often when they're not at our class. Yeah. Wow. Well, okay. I should preface this by saying this is not any sort of advertisement for these companies. And I was asking you sincerely because I, it is hard to find gear. And, you know, we were going up to Bend, Oregon for a few weeks from Los Angeles uh, over the winter break. And I actually, so I asked you this question because I wanted our listeners to hear it, but I did a little <laughs> research on your blog about what we should wear because, you know, I grew up in the Northeast and playing in the snow for hours and I wanted them to be comfortable. And I was worried that coming from LA, you know, they'd have thin skins. But so I did, we got bogs and um, we didn't get that exact jacket, but they were geared up. And I mean, not a single complaint. They were, so, they had just a blast. They were outside all day long. We went on five mile hikes and, um, yeah, I, I the gear is really, really important. So <laughs> that's so cool. Yeah, that's fantastic. And the other thing, Jennifer, is as adults, we also need to make sure we're appropriately dressed because often what I found is adults are quicker to go indoors than children. And so they'll drag the children back in, indoors when the children may not be ready yet. So I think it's really important if we're going to support our children's outdoor time that we also take uh, the time to make sure that we're dressed in outdoor gear that's going to keep us warm and dry too so we can enjoy that nature immersion time with our children. Yeah, no, that's so important because it's really, I love how in your book you talk about how the attitude, your attitude as an adult makes such a difference um, when you're with kids in the outdoors. And I, I, I was experiencing that directly because that day I was telling you about when we went out into the um, rain right from mm -hmm. school, my kids first said, because all the kids had been complaining all day, oh, it's raining. And all the parents had been saying, oh, don't splash in the puddles. Um, so my kids, the first thing they said when we went outside is, oh, man, we have to bike home in the rain. And I remembered <laughs> that part in your book when you were talking about change, you know, your attitude. So it's positive. And I said, oh, isn't this fun? We get to splash and woohoo. Let's see how like, you know, big of a streak through this puddle we can make when they're and literally Aaron within two minutes they were like having a blast. So could you talk a little bit more about like your teacher's attitude and, and why that's so important? Absolutely, Jennifer. And one of the things I'd like to say, because you touched on this, is I was born in 1960. And so my childhood experience was lots and lots of free play in nature. And it was unstructured time. It wasn't an hour here and an hour there. It was also in more wild spaces. It wasn't at the playground. So from an early age, I had a great comfort level and sense of security, spending a lot of time outdoors and outside of adult supervision, by the way, back then. And so I feel like I have inside me a self-confidence to know that this is the right thing to do for children. I lived it. I was outdoors in the pouring rain. I spent many hours playing in the snow and enjoying it quite a lot. So I have this visceral experience and this memory of how good and how beneficial that time was for me. And so as an adult, I am able to understand that on a very deep level. I think one of the problems that's happening these days is younger parents do not have that as their childhood experience. And so they have a lower level of self-confidence in taking children outdoors and having them spend large amounts of time 
uh, in unstructured play outdoors that's outside of their comfort level because they didn't actually live it. So often when teachers or educators are asking me what makes a good forest kindergarten teacher, I quite truthfully say that really the most important things are passion, awe and wonder, and authenticity. Because you're trying to reach children, you're trying to connect with children in nature. So you really also have to have a high level of love for being around young children and a unique ability to connect with them. I like your example where uh, you were saying to your own children um, and switching around the attitude, you were presenting it as a challenge or something exciting. And that is something we quite often do in the forest um, is energetically and enthusiastically um, suggest uh, activities to children um, and reframe the way that we present um, exciting opportunities. Um, I went, once heard that, um, you know, you're not a child anymore when you see a puddle as an obstacle rather than um, an opportunity. Oh. So it's, yeah, when you see a so puddle. Sad. <laughs> yes, I know, right? Um, so you're right. Children love playing in puddles. They love being outdoors uh, in the rain. And so for adults to project onto them that somehow it's going to be a miserable or less quality experience than when it's a quote unquote nice day is really unfair to the children. Yeah. Wow. You know, it's so it's so interesting hearing you talk about your own childhood. And uh, you mentioned, you know, parents today a lot of them don't understand why is this the right thing to do for our children. And I was just kind of struck. Did you see the New York Times this morning by any chance? I did not get a chance to. Yeah. Okay. So there is there is a piece uh, this morning that says, experts say it's essential to give kids time and space to play. And I just, <laughs> right. I'm just like, wh when did we get to it? When do we get to a point in time, Erin, where we need experts to tell us that kids need time and space to play? Uh, well, this is a fat. Uh, <clears throat> this is a sad fact about today's parenting. I think that many parents today, especially in the U.S., are very insecure about their abilities and really are looking to the experts and professionals to tell them what to do. Uh, we used to have more of a community network where parents could uh, discuss with each other in a, a non-judgmental and open-minded way, different parenting, uh, strategies and tools. I think today, a lot of parents are being shamed, uh, and pressured into enrolling children into heavily academic programs as early as three and four. I know that a lot of corporations now do have, uh, math programs for even two-year-olds. And I think, unfortunately, this is really going to be disabling this uh, younger generation of children. I think today's parents in the U.S. have really a great lack of understanding about the value of play, and not only the value, but the critical importance of play. Uh, one of the things that I notice when I watch children authentically interacting with the natural world is they are uh, involved in great physical therapy. Um, the fact that they're climbing and running on uneven ground and craving balancing on logs. These are all ways that children are seeking to integrate their physical sense of the world. And if they are not allowed to have those opportunities, we are quite literally negatively impacting the their physical well-being. Um, so that's the physical therapy side. There's also been more and more evidence 
uh, and this is something I always knew intuitively and from my own childhood, that nature is therapeutic. That when humans go out into a natural space, their blood pressure is lower, they feel more relaxed. And this is especially true of young children. So if you think about today's preschool kids, they are scheduled from the minute they get up until the minute they go to bed. And this is not a natural preschooler's timeline. Um, so they are subjected to so many transitions throughout the day that it is actually stressful. And there have been more and more preschoolers being diagnosed with anxiety and depression. And I think one of uh, uh, th this is actually an outcome from keeping children indoors too much. When children are outside for uh, an extended period of time, especially in unstructured free play, they achieve a great sense of relaxation and they learn that being in nature is very soothing. And we mentor and guide children into learning how to self-soothe in nature. And there's great value in this. And this is a huge part of the learning that is missing for this generation of children. Um, the lack of understanding that nature can be a place where they can go to and seek um, to be rejuvenated. Um, so that message is being completely lost. And I think that there's a, uh, also a great lack of understanding about that aspect amongst today's parents. The final piece, um, and one of the reasons that we're so passionate about the unstructured free time in nature, and our children are out there for four hours with no transitions, no schedule, no structure, no agenda, no teacher-directed activities, because when children have a very hands-on, intimate, and personal connection with the natural world, that leads to later environmental stewardship, and there is a great concern amongst adult environmentalists right now as we see that the demographic of the Sierra Club and the National Wildlife Federation is aging, that where are the next generation of uh, environmentalists? Who is going to take over the movement as we age out? And so there's a concern in environmental circles as well about how we um, create this personal connection, this love of nature that is a direct result of a personal connection early on in life and maintaining that natural affinity that we are born with towards connecting with the natural world. Yeah. Well, I think it's so important that you just said affinity because before, you know, we were talking about therapeutic, how mm -hmm. therapeutic nature is. But, you know, I kind of almost balk at calling it therapeutic because it's almost as though like you know, the baseline is that this is the norm. It should be the it shouldn't be like a benefit that we spend more time in nature. I almost think of it as like we've taken away what has always been the norm, that kids were always outside uh, learning from their natural environment. And now we're in the absence of that reality. And so what are like what are the consequences of that? You know, <laughs> um, which is something I think about all the time. Like it's I worry about this generation, too, that now thinks that it's like it's like a nice thing to go outside if you can have time to do it, as opposed to seeing that we've like radically altered our existence. <laughs> um, yeah. So if you think about it for millennia, the human species has been pre-programmed to expect a direct connection with the natural world when we're born. And for millennia, the way young children learned was through direct 
interaction with the natural world and through observing and role modeling adults. So the idea that they needed to somehow be schooled or that valid learning didn't take place unless they were within four walls and having a teacher stand in front of them dispensing information is a very new concept. And I would argue that when we take children out of their natural state and put them in an artificial environment, we're doing the same thing that we do with wild animals when we put them in the zoo. We're taming them, we're domesticating them, and we're causing them to lose their connection with the natural world. They're no longer wild. And I believe that children develop their most holistically, physically, emotionally, and mentally when they are allowed large amounts of access to the natural world in unstructured free play. My definition of nature immersion is extended unstructured free play in nature that leads to a deep personal and intimate connection with the natural world. So nature immersion is not just about going out and doing sports or going out swimming. It is about this very real uh, intimate connection with nature that can only be achieved through hands-on experiential exploration. And this is what we are um, taking away from our young children. And when they are not allowed that opportunity, we are actually disabling them. I believe that the increasing and alarming incidence of sensory processing disorders is directly a result from uh, of keeping our children indoors. That the lack of outdoor time and the perfect venue that that is for sensory integration is causing young children to have this disability in their, uh, that they are unable to integrate their senses in the way that they are genetically programmed to do through large amounts of uninterrupted outdoor time. Yeah, I love this quote that opens your book, children cannot bounce off the walls if we take away the walls. That's your quote. Yeah. It's, I, I mean, thought- I think that says it all. It's like, yeah, of course. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. Yeah, that that directly came from, uh, you know, in the U.S., we have the expression that, oh, you know, kind of tearing your hair out there, bouncing off the walls. And I was thinking, what is the underlying message there? It's like, get them outside. If they're bouncing off the walls, then they have more energy than can be contained within those walls. Why aren't they being let outside? Right. Yeah, I, I and I want... I. I know our listeners are so eager to hear how a forest kindergarten works in the day to day. And I want to delve into that. But before that, I just want to ask you one more question as we were talking about like, you know, how we lived for millennia. And I I know you talk about tribal cultures in your book Mm -hmm. and how children learn. So I was wondering if did you do any in-depth research um, about tribal cultures or maybe you could just talk a little bit about how children learn in cultures that aren't, you know, westernized in the United States and what's the norm? Well, I haven't done extensive research, but I've done another, enough research to know that, um, and just looking at our history as humans, as I said, for millennia, um, how children learned, you know, so living in a tribal culture, you have multi-generations living together and also, um, you know, relations, you have cousins and aunts and uncles and all those extended family members living together. And children are able to just freely move about these different family groupings and 
as I said, the primary way that young children are, as humans, are programmed to learn is through play, interaction with the natural world, and through observing and role modeling adults. So if you look at the analogy of young wild animals, um, and I used to watch a lot of nature shows when I was a kid, and I just remember the voiceover always discussing when the camera was showing a group of baby animals playing, the voiceover would be saying, it may look like these animals are just playing. However, they're learning real life skills through their play. And I'm thinking, well, that's exactly what human babies and children are doing. And so if they're not allowed to naturally and authentically interact with the natural world, which is where they are supposed to get all this sensory integration and physical therapy, then what is lacking now? What are they missing out on that is now showing out as negative outcomes. Yeah. And I think too, I mean, the kids, at least in LA, I see so many kids, it's not even the natural world. They're not even allowed to interact with anymore. They're not even allowed to like be in a restaurant and interact with a fork or a napkin without being put, you know, have an iPhone put in front of their face because they're being too disruptive. So yeah, it's, um, a little bit terrifying, but also what you're doing, <laughs> what you're doing is giving me a tremendous amount of hope because I see the idea catching on everywhere. I mean, when I first started researching uh, forest kindergartens and found you, I was like, oh my goodness, is there one in Los Angeles? This was probably like a year or so ago, and there uh-huh. wasn't. And now there are all these programs popping up um, because I think once you explain what happens, people are like, of course, I want that for my children. I want that for myself. Like, can you sign me up for forest kindergarten? So, um, well, in the U.S., it's extremely important um, as educators in this model that we be able to articulate all the benefits of the program, because I think as parents understand, as I said, the value of play and the, the need for physical therapy and what are the most important, um, aspects and qualities that you want to instill in your children under age five, um, as parents can understand and articulate that, then they are happy to avail themselves of an educational model like this. And they feel so much better for their children as they see their children resonate with it and thrive in this environment. Yeah. So, okay, let's dig in and let's, can we, can you walk me through what a day is like at Cedar Song and how it all works? Sure. Um, So our program, as I said, is for two to six-year-olds. So even though it's called a forest kindergarten, it actually is a program for preschool-age students. One of the reasons I originally called it a forest kindergarten is because I was drawing directly from the Wald kindergartens in Germany, which literally means forest kindergartens. And in Europe, as most of the world, uh, most of the rest of the world, kindergarten is used to describe the preschool age group. Um, We are one of the only countries that uses the word kindergarten to designate the first year of formal education. So the term kindergarten can be a little problematic, but for our purposes, forest kindergarten, I'm speaking about preschool age kids. And what does kindergarten mean, Erin? The word. Kindergarten means literally child's garden, yeah. and it was a term that was coined. It was a term that was coined over 150 years ago by a German educator called Frederick Frobel. 
And his idea was that children, young children, need to stay away from too many letters and numbers and learn what they need to learn through direct interaction with nature. And that was his idea of having a child's garden um, where children would learn authentically by their interactions with nature. So the interesting thing is the uh, original terminology and definition for the word kindergarten is very far from the way we use it in here in the United States. So sometimes I have to explain to people why it's called a forest kindergarten, even though it's for preschool kids. So that being said, um, we have found that over the last 10 years uh, developing this program, that um, people are having a greater understanding of the benefit of this outdoor time and especially the unstructured free time. So as I said, that is one of the foundational principles of our forest kindergarten, is that when the children are with us for the four hours of nature immersion time, there is no schedule, no agenda, no theme of the day, and no teacher-directed activities. The children are allowed to engage in and explore nature in all of the ways that they choose to do, and they're welcome to climb and go barefoot. They're building and pouring water, um, and uh, very rich natural science lessons come out of this. Uh, we don't overlay any lesson plans. All of the learning is uh, organic and emerges um, through the children's own explorations. So as they're pouring water, so exa for example, last week when they were pouring water, um, the children started to have a conversation amongst themselves about w whether water always flows downhill. Now, remember, young children don't yet know about concepts of gravity or other natural science principles that we just take for granted. And so as they're pouring the water downhill, um, and through a series of experiments, they're noticing that the water does, in fact, always flow downhill, leading them to the conclusion uh, that something is causing all of this uh, water to go downhill. And then we have a four-year-old who understands or has heard the word gravity and schools the two- and three-year-olds about the word gravity. Um, one of the things that we do and pride ourselves in is our teachers are not dispensing answers. We continually ask as long as the children are interested, we ask open-ended questions. What do you think that is? Why do you think it's doing that? How is that happening? What does that smell like? What does that look like? And through these series of open-ended questions, we invite the children to explore their physical world even more deeply and come up with some of their own ideas and um, conclusions based on their own experiments. There's a lot of rich STEAM learning that happens in the field. So the science, technology, engineering, art, and math. Uh, so if you look at an authentic forest kindergarten program and the type of natural science lessons that are flowing out of it, you can see very clearly that this is a STEAM program and that the children are continually setting up experiments and having hypotheses and through their own experiments are coming to these rich conclusions about the natural world. And when this information is place-based and relevant, the children retain the information so deeply. And I've seen three and four-year-olds come back to our program the next year and remember exactly where we saw a certain mushroom growing, or they remember the name of a bird in the spring that they only saw once before when they were three. So this kind of the relevance to the learning because it's all witnessed by them and experienced by them, uh, the natural science lessons are uh, very deeply um, learned and um, 
retained for long periods of times. And this is one of the things that the parents notice right away. And of course, for the American audience, this is very exciting because now they can grasp onto it that it's a science program. Well, that's what I was so, going to ask you, Erin. So do you get pressure? I mean, even from the parents who are open-minded enough to enroll their children and want, to, want them to learn outdoors, do you feel pressure from parents to like demonstrate that real learning and scientific learning is taking place? Oh, absolutely. And that's because, again, you know, anywhere you're going to be running an outdoor program, you have to be sensitive to your cultural norms, your cultural expectations and cultural boundaries. And one of the cultural expectations we have here in the U.S. is we believe preschoolers are responsible for measurable learning. Right. And so, you know, <laughs> we're always looking for ways to prove that they're learning. Like it's not just enough to know that through play, they are learning. Now, we actually have to articulate and be very specific about the way that these children are learning. So we are very particular about documenting the learning. And at snack time, when all the children group together and we sit at our picnic table and eat, we will get out our nature journal and we'll ask the children through a series of leading questions. What did you learn today? What did you do? What excited you? And we'll write down in the children's own words what they found exciting, what uh, experiments they set up, what observations and conclusions that they made. And then at the end of the month, I will capture all that learning and I'll write it up into a newsletter and send it out to all the parents. Um, these are also available on the Cedar Song Nature School Facebook page, by the way, in the notes section. Okay. And you can see how the learning is captured. And originally, I very much focused on the scientific learning that was happening because I knew that's what American parents wanted to hear. But as I got a richer and deeper understanding of all the benefits of this model, Quite often now in the newsletter, I will bring out the social uh, skills, learning, the compassion that we see towards each other and towards the natural world, um, and the emotional skills and intelligence that these children are achieving, because these are some of the added values of that unstructured free time that we see with these children. Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> we don't really think about that as learning, but of course it is. It's so absolutely, important. and and it's, it's so interesting too. Um, I've noticed in your book. So in Germany, they do not document the vault kindergartens like this, do they? Like, do they feel the need so to in, do the in news Europe? Yes. So what I noticed um, on my many travels through Europe, and I've visited seven different countries now uh, to study the forest kindergarten model. Um, one of the things I noticed in Europe was that they're very, um, very big on documenting the growth and development of each child, not so much capturing the actual learning that takes place in the field. Um, so, for example, when I visited the German Wald kindergartens, what I noticed pretty quickly was there was a very distinct way that they differed from how we've developed the American forest kindergarten model. And that is that the educators in Germany stayed quite a distance from the group of children and really let the children just um, uh, converse amongst themselves and uh, their nature finds were exciting to them as a group. But the educators weren't stepping in at these what I call teachable moments. And I felt like to honor the U.S. expectations and my cultural um, 
um, attitudes that I really needed to support that learning as I saw it percolate. So if a child sees a mushroom and is excited about it, or they see a slug and they're excited about it, we will reflect back that excitement to them and come scurrying over and maybe offering a magnifying glass and start in on some leading questions that'll um, prompt children to um, to have conversations with us about what they think this animal is doing or this mushroom. Uh, we may ask them leading questions like, does that mushroom have gills? Does it have a stem? Is it growing out of the ground or is it growing out of bark? And through these uh, leading questions, the children will um, be encouraged to use their own problem solving skills. Critical thinking and divergent thinking are all enhanced with this type of model. And I felt like in the US that that was gonna resonate more with the parents than seeing the educators have a completely hands-off uh, attitude when these moments of learning came to the surface. So that's just one really distinct way that, um, as I've developed the American Forest Kindergarten model, this idea of inquiry-based teaching is really big in this model, whereas it was not in the German Wald Kindergartens. Yeah, it's so interesting. And by the way, I think it's really important that you're doing that because it's helping to spread the movement across the U.S. And, you know, for for grownups who are interested in and educators who are interested in adopting this model, I, I think it's so important. I mean, maybe one day we'll get to a point where everyone's okay with just letting people and children be um, and learning. But I, I think it's, I, you know, I applaud you for doing that right now because I think it's really important. Thank you. And I am really gratified to see all these forest kindergartens and nature-based preschools and outdoor preschools cropping up all over the country. Um, I run a teacher training program here at Cedar Song. And one of the things that I've noticed over the years that I've been running the program is that I am getting more and more educators from public schools and even educators who teach fourth and fifth and sixth grade science classes. And one of the reasons is because the model that I've created here at Cedar Song is translatable to older students and to other educational um, uh, systems, because really what I'm talking about is when you take the children outside. So first you need to have a commitment to take the kids outside. So a lot of public schools now, thankfully, um, they have supportive administrators and superintendents and they're having like forest Fridays. So every Friday they're committed to going outside no matter what the weather. And this is great to see this being uh, implemented in the public schools because um, what we're talking about in taking the children outside is not taking them outside and running them in laps around the um, around the soccer field. Right, like uh, dogs. You know, like they do for PA <laughs> or P is what they do for PE these days. Yeah. You know, they have the kids just running around. Um, but this is a rich learning opportunity and more and more public schools are creating outdoor classrooms and maybe they're just holding classes outside, which is great, but hopefully they're also allowing the children to do a little interest-led discovery and when their curiosity is peaked, asking those leading questions and then also taking notes when you're outdoors and following the children's interests and lead. That when you go back indoors, you have these beautiful threads of learning that you can scaffold into indoor lesson plans that are more exciting to the children because they have relevance and they're following up on the children's own natural curiosity that you've noticed when you're outdoors with them. 
Right. And I want to give, I really want to delve into your uh, teacher training and certification program and the model that you offer. But before we do, I was just wondering if we could go back just to, you know, the day to day of the kindergarten. Yeah. I had a couple <laughs> other questions that I know some people are curious about. Okay. So, um, all right. You covered snacks. So there is like a, there's a structured snack time. Is that how it works or is there? Yeah. So basically, as I said, our program is four hours, 9am okay. to 1pm and midway through we will break for snack. And this is the only time that the children are all required to come together as a group. Um, and the teachers also meet uh, with them. We all sit together at the snack table. Uh, the children bring their own snacks um, this was an idea I got from the forest kindergartens in Europe. Um, I know in the U.S., generally preschools provide the snacks. And for many years, we did at Cedar Song also. But last year, we decided to have the kids bring their own snacks in their backpacks. And it's actually been a great strategy because we find the children eat more because it's familiar food from home. We don't have to deal as much with allergies. Um, and the children feel more comforted, too, when they're eating familiar food from home. Okay, and so, so then you don't do lunch there. Well, here's the thing, Jennifer. Well, okay. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the preschool set. I, I believe preschoolers need to eat about every two hours. Yeah, yeah. So whether you're calling it snack or lunch or a break or whatever you want to call it, we stop and eat around 11 a.m. Got it. Okay, just <laughs> and then curious. The yeah. And then when the parents show up at one, they know to show up with a snack of yeah. some kind. Okay. So that's just something we've um, educated the parents about. And it's it's really worked quite well. Yeah. I was so asking we more because, um, mm -hmm. you know, so we do a nature class here with my kids, not um, not during school hours, after school. But a lot of times we talk about how there isn't a structured snack time. We we call it hungry time. So that uh -huh. the kids, so I was just wondering, you know, if there has to be some sort of method to the madness when you're outside and, or if, you know, there was actual a sit down snack time. So <laughs> thanks for answering that. Yes. And the reason for that is, uh, you know, everything we do at Cedar Song is interest led. So children will say to us, um, even yesterday, it was 46 degrees Fahrenheit here in the Northwest. And um, the children were asking to strip down to their base layer. base, And um, we had to, as teachers, know that that was going to be okay, that children can, that we're going to honor children's own internal experience, their perceptions of whether they're cold or hot, to a point. I mean, at 40 degrees, we start getting a little bit more insistent about the number of layers the children should have on. But when it's not life-threatening or even a health issue, then we will let the children make the choice about what, how much clothing they want to have on. And it's the same kind of thing with snack. We uh, don't say to the kids, okay, kids, it's 11 o'clock, time to break for snack. We'll start hearing the children maybe talking about being hungry and we'll say, wow, it sounds like you're starting to feel hungry. Why don't you ask your other friends if they're feeling hungry? And this occurs almost always, usually around 11 o'clock. And in the early days, we actually thought we were going to let the children decide when they were going to have snack, but it would get to be almost 1130 and the children were still saying they weren't hungry. And then all of a sudden we were having major meltdowns. Yep. And so we, <laughs> we decided that the better strategy was to have one thing that we were insistent about there being a time. And even that, as I said, we don't use linear time. We just start encouraging the children to check inside their own bodies, whether they're starting to feel hungry, the teachers are knowing that it's just about 11 o'clock. Right. Yeah. I love that. It's a lot of, you know, <laughs> tuning in and, and responding and giving them the space to figure it out too. But it's, it sounds like a wonderful balance. Um, yeah. 
Well, it's really neat asking about the day-to-day. So the children show up at nine o'clock. And by the way, we have two thirds of our enrollment comes from off island. So they actually have to ride the ferry to get here. We and they're coming here from Seattle? Where are they coming from? Families are coming from Seattle and Tacoma and from the Olympic Peninsula, um, which is can be up to an hour commute to get to our school. Wow. Now, the interesting thing to me is there are about a dozen nature-based preschools right in the Seattle area. That was my and next so, question. Yeah. And yet families who are so committed to our program make that commute to get their two, three, and four-year-olds to us because they understand the added value that is the unstructured free time. And they see the benefits for their children, especially if their children have been diagnosed with either ADHD and or sensory processing disorders. Um, These families see a huge benefit to our program. And we actually have more occupational therapists and physical therapists referring these children to our program because these are the kind of kids that don't do well with a lot of transitions, um, with a lot of overlaid structure. And so they just thrive in our program. And as the parents see the benefit, they're just hooked. We almost never lose families and families are willing to make that commute because it's not just the natural science learning that they are intrigued by. It is what they see as the added value, this building of environmental stewardship, the sensory integration. The physical the com- learning. The physical learning, the physical therapy. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then the very last thing, even though I don't think it's the last thing, but it's the last I'm going to mention, is what we call compassion scaffolding. So every day in the forest, we have an opportunity to guide and mentor and coach those children how to be gentle with the natural world, how to respect the natural world. These children will not pick moss off of trees because they understand it's alive. They will gently, gently touch little mushrooms. Even two and three-year-olds would not pick these mushrooms because they understand they're alive. When we encounter a millipede or a slug um, and the children are maybe touching it gently um, and all of a sudden we notice it um, starts to curl up or um, go back inside itself, if it's a snail, then we'll ask the children, why do you think it's doing that? And they correctly will guess it's feeling scared. Um, It's nervous and these kinds of things. So there's a high level of compassion being built for all of the natural world. And the children are learning that even if you don't love all aspects of nature, you have to respect it because we are part of nature. And this is a lesson that is being sorely lost on today's generation of children. So when the parents see this high level of um, respect and empathy and compassion being built in their two and three-year-olds, they just think it's the greatest thing ever. When they're um, when they see the children exhibiting these um, these what are at now going to be lifelong skills, they're ecstatic because they didn't even think about the importance of instilling qualities like compassion and empathy and respect and kindness in their two and three-year-olds. A lot of parents think that those children are too young to learn those lessons. That is absolutely not true. And I would argue that it's way more important to instill those lifelong qualities in your under five-year-old than it is to teach them to read and write. Yeah. Because, and you know, it's so important. And if you miss that window, 
you don't get, I mean, it's much harder to teach a seven-year-old compassion for living things than it is if they've grown up with it. I know that for my own children and, and you know, the children I see around me in LA and I, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, sign the thing us up. Is, <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is too, um, Jennifer, I wanted to point out is that when you think of the forest kindergarten in that way, you can see that it's an early intervention program. So, you know, programs like Outward Bound who are, that are very successful in using wilderness and wild nature in a therapeutic way for troubled teens, you could argue that those teens are troubled because so many of these lessons about compassion, empathy, connectedness, respect, kindness were not instilled in those early years. And so now we're having to come and do intervention later. Well, if these lessons are front loaded, you can see this becomes an early intervention program because as these children age, they would be horrified to see anybody bullied. They would be horrified to see any kind of animal abuse. Um, so these are the type of qualities that we're instilling in these young children that are not being attended to by most preschool programs these days, no matter what the underlying program is, whether it's an outdoor program or uh, or an indoor program. Um, for example, our children, we coach our children to be what we call quiet observers rather than handlers. So if we come across a creature like a frog or um, an, uh, another amphibian like a salamander, our children are actually disallowed from touching those because we understand that their skin is so fragile and permeable that we could inadvertently harm them without intention. And so we talk about this with the children. And so now they will see a frog and they wouldn't even touch it, but they'll call our attention to it. We'll ask the leading questions. They'll get very excited about it. And then maybe we'll want to scoop it up gently onto a leaf and put it in a place where it's not going to be harmed. And this is where the empathy becomes compassion because you probably know that empathy is feeling for another because you can understand their situation. Compassion is the next step. That is finding out what you can do to help this person feel more safe or this animal feel more safe. Yeah. And I just, I just wanted to, you know, I see a lot of, I've seen from my own kids, a lot of different preschool programs. It's not as though what they're teaching in preschool is coming from a bad place. It's coming from a good place. It's just, I think you can't replicate those lessons in what you would, we would call like a conventional westernized preschool environment. It's a lot hard. It's a lot easier to learn those lessons that you're talking about, Erin, when you're actually outdoors and seeing those creatures as opposed to looking at them in a book and, you know, trying yes. to say like the letter of the day is E. Let's talk about empathy. Yes. I mean, right? you know, it's, it's so, you know, a lot of people listening who I, there are a lot of educators out there who may be listening. And I just, um, I hope they're as excited by what you're talking about as, uh, as you are, because, <laughs> you know, I, I think it's a way to, to take what they want to do and do it in a much more effective way. So, um, which leads me actually, I have one more practical question, and then, sure, and then I want to have you talk about how people listening can get more involved and, um, you know, what needs to shift big picture. But okay, sure. last practical question bathroom, just because, you know, <laughs> I, 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 that's well, like the first question I would want to know if I were a parent. Where did they go to the bathroom? I have to tell you, Jennifer, that's probably the most frequently asked question after what are you do with the kids when it's raining? Yeah. Um, we have a composting toilet in a little shed. Um, and this is legal in the county that we live in. Oh, how cool. Um, 
Yeah, it is cool. And um, it's a little bit tall, though, for some of the two-year-olds. So we also have a little baby Bjorn potty that they can sit on. We figure that's more familiar to what they have at home, and um, it will increase their comfort level. But yes, we have a private place that the children can use the bathroom. Now, that being said, a lot of kids do want to pee outdoors, and we have a designated place where they can do so. Yeah. Yeah, kids love, I mean, my kids love peeing <laughs> in our backyard. I just, you know. oh, yeah. <laughs> that, that's really fun. Um, okay. Yeah. Thank you for answering that question. Of course. Um, okay. So, because we're running out of time, I just want to give you the opportunity to talk about um, your training program and what can people do, A, if they are parents and they really want, and they live somewhere else, not near you, and they really mm-hmm. want to send their kids to a school? Um, B, what can they do if they're educators and they're interested in learning more about this? And C, sorry to load them on, but what can we do at the legislative level? Like, why isn't this spreading like wildfire? Is that too many okay. questions? Um, <laughs> let's see. So what can people do, um, um if parents who want to get involved in, and send their kids to a forest school? Well, I think the first thing to do, of course, is to seek uh, some kind of alternative program in your area, whether it's an after-school program, a Saturday program, or a forest kindergarten program that runs every day. Um, I think if you're a little nervous about the whole idea of the unstructured time, you may be looking for more of a nature-based preschool. And one of the things I want to say is anytime that people are getting children out into nature, it's a good thing. So I'm very passionate about the forest kindergarten model. However, there are many other great natural science and nature-based preschools uh, that um, would definitely enhance your child's learning. Um, I think the other thing is model that outdoor time is valuable. So go outdoors with your children and don't give negative messages about whether it's raining or snowing. Um, Keep your own excitement level up. Make sure that you are appropriately dressed when you go outside and really just let the children take a lead Um, instead of going out with a big agenda and an idea and projects and props. Just go outside and start walking and start looking around and being highly observant and asking questions. Whoa, what is that? Why do you think that's there? And these kinds of things. As we said before, the excitement that you have in your own voice is enough to get a lot of children's enthusiasm peaked as well. Um, And what about teachers? Oh, unless you want to add something else. No, I I was just going to move to teachers. Okay, and your training Um, program. Yeah, I think... um, One of the first things I want to say is a lot of times educators are concerned that they're not a certified teacher or they haven't had a whole bunch of early childhood education and that that somehow is going to impact their ability to to successfully run this model. And I would just like to say, as I said before, I think the most important qualities are um, passion, awe and wonder and authenticity. And what I mean by that is just you sometimes can get bogged down if you've had too much higher education. But really, if you're excited about nature and you're excited about watching your children learn, then you're going to be the perfect match for guiding your children in that experiential learning, whether you're a teacher or a parent. I think As a teacher also, if you're intrigued by the idea of getting your students outdoors more, then it's important to um, educate yourself about all the current research that shows that that is a great way to get children to focus better on their academics when they come back indoors and to find um, 
a superintendent or an administrator that is sympathetic to this and has an understanding of the value and importance of outdoor time and start making that commitment to getting the kids outdoors. Um, one of the reasons that I started the, the Cedar Song Way Forest Kindergarten Teacher Training Program was because I wanted to inspire and empower other educators to successfully implement this model, whether they're going to run an actual forest kindergarten or if they're going to take some of the elements of this model and bring it into their educational program, whether it's a public school, private school, charter school, um, and no matter what grade level it is, as I said, this model can be translated to any age and any other educational program as, far, uh, as long as certain principles are adhered to. And you will definitely see that it enhances uh, your program, um, even if you're just looking for outcomes like more teamwork and um, more group bonding. Um, I think one of the things that is really important, as you mentioned, is going to be getting the legislatures on board with this, because right now it is very much a grassroots movement. Uh, as you see, so much of the educational uh, programming is still determined from people who are not in education, people who aren't in the day-to-day -day classroom. And so um, all of these uh, false ideas about how young children learn and unfortunately the corporate influence um, that uh, preys on parents' insecurities and pushes these highly academic programs on young children has to be resisted. And we have to be in a position to articulate why these programs aren't a good match for our young children. So I think as far as um, being a teacher um, and advocating uh, or advocating to our legislature, one of the most important things is going to be understanding all the current research. And thankfully, there is a lot of research coming out now that supports the ideas that I'm talking about as the best way to support young children's learning. In Washington state, we have a unique situation. The legislature actually appropriated some funds to give to the Department of Early Learning, and they're in the middle of a pilot project to study 10 different uh, nature-based preschools and forest kindergartens. Cedar Song Nature School is part of this pilot project. Um, and they're gonna determine a way that these outdoor programs can become licensed because currently we are not able to be licensed. No outdoor program in Washington state and most of the country is not able to be licensed because all of the licensing reg regulations contemplate an indoor setting. And so they're just not appropriate for what we're doing. Wow. So the Washington is very progressive and forward thinking. And sometime next year, the legislature will get a report from the Department of Early Learning um, illuminating the ways in which um, regulations can be uh, amended to include licensing for all outdoor programs. Wow, I will be so excited to see the results of that. Um, Me too. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, you know, I want to add too that we didn't mention that in Germany, all of these programs are free, right? That's provided by the government. They are, and that's because um, Germany, like the rest of Europe, has more of a social uh, socialist government, and so you know, just like uh, healthcare is paid for, um, daycare is paid for from the time the child is one years old till they enter formal education at age six or even seven in some countries in Europe. So it's not that um, you know forest kindergartens are singled out and paid for so much as all preschool is. 100% uh, 
free because that's the type of um, government that they have in Europe. So in the United States, it's one of the only countries where parents are expected to pay for daycare or preschool. And as you know, that's a huge problem in this country. Yeah, well, but it's important to note that the governments there do recognize that this is an important model that can be included oh. in that overall picture of, of early childhood education. So Absolutely. And because the forest kindergartens or vault kindergartens in Germany have been running for so long, there is plenty of evidence that children who come out of a forest kindergarten preschool uh, perform actually perform better academically when they get into primary school than their um, peers who went to a more academic preschool. Yeah. Wow. Erin, it has been such a joy and a pleasure to speak with you. I, where can people get in touch with you? What is next for you? Um, you know, any closing well, thoughts? Yes. Thank you, Jennifer. Um, I can be reached at cedarsongnatureschool.org. That is the website for the Cedar Song Forest Kindergarten. You can find more details about the program there. I'm also available at erinkenny.com, which describes all the different training options uh, that I offer. And what's next is that I have really achieved uh, an international recognition. And one of the benefits to the teachers that I train and when I speak at conferences is I do have a very international perspective. And so um, I'm getting in April, I'm going and keynote speaking at a conference in England. In uh, July, I've been hired to lead a training in Italy. And in the fall, I'm going to uh, be going to Iceland to speak at a conference there. So I'm reaching uh, a wider, broader audience than I ever thought that I could. And it has given me the perspective to be able to speak eloquently about the differences between these other international models and what's going on here in the United States, and also to feel uh, more empowered to um, have this perspective that what we are doing here to our young children is wrong. And I've been able to state that more emphatically as I travel around the world and see what's being done right in other countries. Well, I want to applaud your efforts and thank you so much for everything you do. And I'm so excited to keep following you and your work. And I hope you will come back on the show maybe next season and report on on your findings Mm -hmm. from all your travels. That would be great. Thank you so much, Jennifer. I've really, really enjoyed speaking with you this morning. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Uncivilized Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, you can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher Radio so you don't miss the next one. And please leave us a rating and review. If you want to talk more about this episode or have an idea for a future show, head over to my Instagram page. That's at Jennifer Grayson one. As with every episode, the resources and links for this show are available at jennifergrayson.com, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, which comes out once a month. Our theme music is by composer Paul Damian Hogan. That's it for me, and I'll see you next Monday with a new episode.